please join me in the reading of God's Word from the New Testament. This is our sermon text reading today. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have come to do everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking about John the Baptist. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you so much, Dan. Appreciate that. Always great to be back with you guys uh, very, very much. I love this congregation for lots of reasons. The connection with uh, the Armstrongs is one, and uh, Brooke Hemphill and uh, Jim Dulles and I all serve on the uh, board of a church planting network here in the Atlanta area. That's another connection. And for a while now, David Intrican has been your executive pastor, and I've known David's dad, Rod, for many decades, for a long time, and good friends, and we're working even more closely together. And uh, that has uh, also, as I've seen him here, it's like, my goodness, have you ever seen two people that look more alike, right? Sort of like Pete and repeat when you see Rod and and then David. But uh, a lot of great connections here, a lot of love, and I sure do appreciate it. I'm excited to be part of this series, too. I love the title of it, uh, Seeing, Savoring, and Showing Jesus. Uh, man, that really says it all because, indeed, biblical Christianity really is all about Jesus. Uh, we as Christians, we are going to fail, and that means the church of the Lord Jesus Christ will fail and at times be pretty ugly. But uh, Jesus, uh, who he was, who he is, what he's done, what he's doing now, that is all nothing but good news. And that is what our faith is really all about. As you're going through this series, my guess is, just as you heard today's scripture read, today's passage, today's story, so to speak, is probably pretty different than most of the stories you've heard, right? I think as you read through the Gospels, and this story is in two of the four Gospels, Matthew and Luke, when you come to this story, it sort of takes you by surprise. It's shocking. It's not like anything else. And if you're reading along in the Gospels, it sort of sneaks up on you a little bit, doesn't it? Uh, now, I was raised in the church, so I heard this story growing up. I, I, you know, was familiar with the big idea of it. It wasn't until I was in my early 20s, though, that I really understood the meaning of this event. And understanding that meaning was revolutionary. 
But I have to tell you this morning, it's only been in the last couple of years that I've understood the reason for it. There's the meaning of it, and then there is also the reason for it. And when I saw the reason for this, it has meant more to my heart and more to my life than I ever would have imagined. And that's what we want to talk about today. How in the world does this idea of Christ and his glory and the whole topic of glory and those kind of things, how does it relate uh, to you and me? So today there are going to be two main parts of our message. You'll see, see them on the screen here. There is the event and the meaning of the transfiguration. We'll talk about that for a while. And then we'll talk about the reason for the transfiguration. So pretty simple and straightforward. The event and the meaning of the transfiguration, and then the reason for the transfiguration. So with that being said, let's dig in. The event. What happens right here? Well, what happens here is that Jesus takes the inner three of his twelve, Peter, James, and John, from time to time, he gave them glimpses of experiences and invited them into things that he didn't the other nine. And this is one of those times they go up to the top of Mount Horeb in northern Israel. And there, what happens here really is God the Father pulls back the veil, so to speak. He pulls back the curtain and he lets these three people see Jesus in all of his glory. Now, Jesus had existed for all eternity past in all glory. Now he exists, and he will in the future, in all glory. But during his first advent, during his earthly time here, he was in what we call theologically his state of humiliation, so to speak, a humble state. And his earthly appearance, his normal human experience, hid the glory that was true for him. But here, just for a few hours, perhaps, we really don't know how long, God pulls back that curtain, and Peter and James and John see this astounding event. Verse 2 in the passage simply says this. It says, His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. It's like, wow, my goodness, what happened? But the only way perhaps we can get even more of a picture of what this might have seemed like is to think about another passage where Jesus appears in all of his glory and majesty. In Revelation chapter 1, the apostle John sees the glorified Christ as he begins to give that revelation. And this is his experience. It's probably something like Peter, James, and John. John says here, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, a reference from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament about the Messiah. Dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. That would signify he was both a priest and a king. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. Think what it would be like standing next to Niagara Falls, that kind of thing. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And he placed his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and of Hades. Well, if that by itself, a view of the glorifying Christ wasn't enough, there are two things that happen on the Mount of Transfiguration that are notable. First of all, Moses and Elijah also appear there 
and they have a conversation with Jesus. And then also, there's this voice from heaven that booms from heaven, said, this is my son. I'm pleased with him. Listen to him. Now, what does all that mean? Let's unpack it. Before we really can really know what's happening here, we need to know, who are Moses and Elijah? Now, in a room like this, perhaps some of you know a lot about him and others, them, and others may not know much at all. Let's stop and define that. Moses, of course, was the one who led Israel out of Egypt. He was their deliverer. And in that way, he prefigures Christ as the one who delivers us from bondage. And also, very importantly, Moses was the giver of the law. In the view of Judaism, there perhaps was no one from the Old Testament in higher regard than Moses, the giver of the law. Well, who was Elijah? Elijah was perhaps the most famous of the prophets. Many prophets of the Old Testament, but Elijah may have been, in a sense, the most prophet. Elijah had star power, so to speak. Uh, Elijah did amazing things. Uh, Elijah prophesied at such a time that he prophesied hard things to Israel, but he prophesied hard things to the oppressors of Israel. So he was sort of a a hero for Israel. They loved him. Uh, In fact, Elijah had this showdown with the prophets of a Canaanite god called Baal. And he sort of showed in a dramatic way that the Lord really is God. So he was quite an amazing prophet. Another thing he did that sort of prefigures Christ, he actually raised someone from the dead. Let me tell you that story. It happened with a woman who was not Jewish. She was from a land a little bit north of Israel called Zarephath. Uh, She was a supporter of Elijah's ministry. In fact, had a room at the top of her home that Elijah could use whenever he wanted to. She had a son. And one day that son became ill and then he died. And she cried out with anguish, as you can imagine. What has happened here? Why? What I'm, I'm being good to this man of God. God strikes my son. And he sends her servants to find Elijah. And Elijah comes back. And she is rightly, above, I mean, you know, logically complaining to Elijah about this. And then this is what it says in 1, Corinthians, 1 Kings 17. Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? And then he stretched himself out on the boy three times, imagine eyeball to eyeball, face to face, hand to hand, and he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. And in this way, he prefigured Christ as well. He raised this boy from the dead, prefiguring how Christ would raise all of us from the dead who know him and trust in him. So here's the idea. Moses is the giver of the law. Elijah is the greatest of the prophets. And so they represent, in a sense, all of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, the law and the prophets. And here they are. Standing here, having a conversation with Jesus. Now, in the midst of this, the Apostle Peter, who often blurted things out when he shouldn't and went there when he shouldn't, he he says to Jesus, I've got an idea. Let me build three tents. And the idea is three shrines, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Is that okay if I do that? And I can imagine leading up to this because, again, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus have a conversation We find out from Luke's gospel. We don't know how long they've been there. But I can imagine 
maybe Peter whispering to the other two guys, see, I told you Jesus is really a big deal. I told you he was awesome. Like, he is just like Moses and Elijah. I mean, he's just as good as those guys. And in the midst of him saying, he's just as good as Moses and Elijah, this voice booms out of heaven. And the voice that booms out of heaven is the voice of God the Father. And he says, this is my son, not just my servant, not just a person, this is my son. With him I'm pleased. Listen to him. The idea, indeed, is this, that he's even, he's even greater. In fact, when, when it says here, listen to him, it immediately, I'm sure, for Peter, James, and John, it made them remember what Moses had said to Israel. We'll look at that one verse again from Deuteronomy 18. Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You must listen to him. So here's the point. point is this. Here's the meaning of the transfiguration. Jesus is not like Moses and Elijah. Jesus is far superior to Moses and Elijah. They were servants of God, but Jesus is the Son of God. They served in the house of God. Jesus rules over the house of God. They were prophets of God, but Jesus is the prophet of God. And everything that they did was simply leading up to Jesus. In fact, just how great Jesus is compared to these prophets the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament, very first three verses of the, of the book, this is how he says it. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. And then notice verse three, and the son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Well, there's the difference. So here's the event of the transfiguration. It scared Peter, James, and John to death. They fell on their faces in fear. And here's the meaning of the transfiguration. Jesus is greater than Moses and Elijah. Jesus is the greater Moses. He is the greater Elijah. What they were all about were prefiguring what he did. In fact, all of the law and the prophets, all of the Old Testament is simply pointing to him, and there's the meaning of it. Now, that, that ought to be enough. That's a sermon in and of itself. But just in the last couple of years, as I was delving into this passage to preach it, I saw some things I'd never seen before. And I saw what I think is the reason for the transfiguration. Why in the world did this need to happen? That's the question. Was Jesus just showing off? Was he just doing tricks? Is there really some real reason this needed to happen? And here's what I found out, and here's what I realized and believe. There are four sections of Matthew's gospel. The first section of Matthew's gospel is just the first four chapters, his birth and the early part of his ministry. The last section of the book are, are chapters uh, 21 through 28. All about the Holy Week. Starts with the transfiguration, ends with the resurrection. This event happens toward the first part of the third section. The third section starts in Matthew 16. It starts with the Apostle Peter making his confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And immediately after that, what happens is this. Jesus starts his journey toward Jerusalem. 
in the next number of chapters, it is all about his trek toward Jerusalem. And Jesus knows as he goes there, it is the last time he will ever go to Jerusalem. He knows that awaiting for him in Jerusalem is his torture and is his death and is the cross. Very aware of it. So Matthew's gospel says that all along the way, Jesus began to talk more about these things. His own torture, his own death on the cross, and the cost of discipleship. That was his theme. In fact, in Matthew 16, let's see how he says it here. Matthew 16 says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And Peter, once again, speaks up when he shouldn't, took him aside, began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, this will never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the things of God or the ways of God, but instead the ways and things of men. And then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he also must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. Now, why did this need to happen? Two reasons. The first reason is this. Jesus needed it. Jesus was divine, but remember, Jesus was also a man. And I think the man Jesus needed a team meeting before he got to the cross. He needed to hear the voice of his father affirming him. He needed to hear Moses and Elijah affirming him. Matthew's gospel doesn't tell us, but Luke's gospel tells us what they talked about. You know what they talked about? They said they talked about his departure. I think by that they meant... They talked about his resurrection and his ascension. They discussed and they let, in a sense, Jesus himself experience right there, the Father did, the glory that he would have for all eternity. And as Jesus thought about facing the cross, and remember in the garden, he sweat drops of blood because this was so excruciating to anticipate his death for our sins. Jesus needed this event. But I think the other reason it happened is this. Peter, James, and John, and you and I need this event. We need the understanding of the glory and majesty of Jesus. I'll put it to you this way. Back when I was uh, maybe even in high school or college years, uh, there was an organization that was born called Worldwide Discipleship Association, WDA. And WDA put out a lot of good discipleship materials. And one whole book they had to use to disciple people was called The Glorified Christ. And it was a study of one passage after another in the New Testament, like this one, that talks not about Jesus in the three years he roamed here on earth in a state of humiliation, but it talks about him in all of his glory. Now, why is that so important? I think it's for this reason. Following Jesus means taking up a cross and denying ourselves. It means saying no to yourself day after day after day. No to your preferences. No to your self-will. No to your self-lordship. No to your self-salvation. Following Jesus means being misunderstood by the world, maybe by your family. Being opposed by the world, maybe by your family. It is going to be hard. 
my friends, if you don't believe in and understand the majesty of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, the lordship of Jesus, the current power of Jesus, you're probably not going to make it. This is what gives wind to ourselves and fuel in our tank. But on the other hand, my friends, if you fix your heart, heart and fix your imagination on Jesus and all of his glory and power, you will find strength and you will find courage to follow him no matter the cost. If this sermon is very much about the intersection between two things, the majesty of Jesus and the call to discipleship. The majesty of Jesus and the call to discipleship. Those have to go together. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Who was Dietrich Bonhoeffer? He was the leader of a, the German church, the, the, the uh, confessing church in the time just before and during World War II. He was a man of great courage. He had come to America to study. He had connected with evangelical Christianity along the way. And he stood as one who stood not only for the good news of Jesus Christ, he stood against Hitler. And out of his desire for justice, out of his desire for the right thing to be done, observing the genocide of the Jewish people, he stood against Hitler. In fact, lost his life because he was an opponent of Hitler. Arrested, taken to a prison, taken to a concentration camp, hanged. Bonhoeffer famously wrote a wonderful, wonderful classic, modern classic called The Cost of Discipleship. And in that book and other writings, Bonhoeffer contrasts two things, what he calls cheap grace and costly grace. You won't see it on the screen, but let me, let me read you, if you'll follow with me, some of the things he said about this. He said, cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Christ Jesus living and incarnate. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift we must ask for, the door which must be knocked upon. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, but it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it cost a man his life, it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. It is grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought at a price, and what has cost God much cannot be cheap to us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our lives, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of love. My friends, you have to see these two connected. The call to discipleship and the glory and the majesty of Jesus. I can't end the sermon without making one other thing really clear, and that is the lordship of Jesus is a non-negotiable. You know, at least in the... Uh, American setting for a long, long time now, and perhaps still today, there is the idea that somehow you, you can have Jesus as your Savior, but not have him as your Lord. For a while, there was, in fact, a very overt theology saying this, taught by a certain 
few seminaries and Bible schools around our country. They're not quite as prominent as they used to be. But what used to be taught very expressly, you can have Jesus as your Savior at this point and later maybe decide to make him your Lord or not, functionally is the way many people do live lives. I want him as my Savior. I want all that stuff. I just want to be the boss of my own life and still have forgiveness of sins. I want to be the boss of my own life and have eternal life. I just don't want Jesus as Lord. There's a minister of our denomination who talked about his conversion. I think this occurred when he was a teenager. He went to a gathering, and there was someone speaking there by the name of Barbara Boyd. And this man says, I've never forgotten two illustrations that Barbara Boyd told that illustrate the Lordship of Christ and why it's necessary. She said, I'm Barbara Boyd, and if I were to knock on your door, and you were, if you were to say, come in, Barbara, but stay out, Boyd, I couldn't do that. It's not that one of, part of me is Barbara and the other part is Boyd. I am all Barbara Boyd. And so if you want me to come in, Barbara comes in and Boyd comes in. She said it's the same way about Jesus as Savior as Lord. He is all Savior. He is all Lord. He's Lord because he's Savior, and he's Savior because he is Lord. And so you can't divide him up. If you have him in, in one sense, you have him in, in the other. Great observation. The other illustration that this man remembered was that Barbara Boyd held up a sheet of paper and said, if this sheet of paper, just the, the, the width of this sheet of paper, represented the distance from the earth to the sun, 93 million miles, then the, uh, then the, the diameter of just our galaxy would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. Now, that's pretty mind-boggling, isn't it? That just our galaxy is that huge compared to 93 million miles. And she said, and, and we all know that our galaxy, from the known universe we can see through our telescopes, our galaxy is just a speck of dust in light of the whole universe. And it may very well be that the part of the universe we can see is like a speck of dust compared to the whole universe. And Barbara Boyd made the point, if Jesus sustains all that by the power of his word, then you cannot ask him to come into your life to be your personal assistant. He'll come into your life only to be your Lord, your master, the center of your very life. My friends, this is all very good news because we need a king to rule over us. We need a king to deliver us. We need a Lord of our lives who is as powerful as Jesus, as good as Jesus, as wise as Jesus, as loving as Jesus, as full of grace as Jesus is. And this is good news. It's good news that we have to die to ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. You know what, folks? It's only going to happen if we focus on his glory. The reality is this. All of us here today live for our glory in one way or another, don't we? Through our achievements, through our attractiveness, through what we've done, we all don't we want, I do, that pat on the back, that recognition, that sense of glory coming to me. And the truth of the matter is all of us start looking for glory in all the wrong places in life. Because we were made for this. We were made to be a reflection of the glory of Jesus. Just like the moon simply shines by reflecting the light of the sun, the glory that is right for us is simply the reflection of the glory of Jesus. And you were made to reflect his glory. You were made to be in awe of his glory. You were made to be enamored with his glory. And don't miss this. You will only be satisfied in your soul of soul and your heart of hearts with the glory of Jesus. That's why this story is so important. That's why we need to understand who Jesus is. He's called us to discipleship. 
but he's called us to be disciples of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Christ in all of his majesty and glory. And I don't know what you're facing this week in your life, perhaps something hard. I bet every one of us are facing many, many difficult things. Maybe it's a family situation. Maybe it's a health situation. Maybe it's a situation at your work. Maybe it's a temptation that you face and it's hounding you. Maybe it's the memories of your past or anxiety over your future. But God is calling you to follow him wholeheartedly. And as you do, please remember, Jesus in all of his glory, he is sufficient for whatever you face, and he is here as your king and your deliverer. Jesus, the cross, glory, discipleship. Let's pray, if you please. Lord, we do.